dystopians of the world. I'm Raul Guerrero, and I welcome you to the Dystopian Republic. The dawn of December 31st, 1975 is where today's story will begin. All was normal at Brumel Square as hundreds made final preparations for a New Year's celebration that over a hundred thousand were expected to attend. Upton Sr. and Misha watched the volunteers work from a diner six stories above and ate their waffles with a prescient nonchalance. A man's eyes widened and tightened as his drive across the Delbru Highway neared Delgadopolis. He fought long and hard about letting the payload in his car's trunk do its job because he had a wife and three little girls. The man's drive parked to an end in the parking garage of Loyohia Mall, giving him one last chance to back out, which he gave the middle finger to. He stepped out, said that this was for the people, and calmly walked away with his hands in his pockets. An excited and giddy Catalpa exited a boutique's fitting room and asked an associate how she looked in a white jumper, dyed fur boots, black turtleneck, leggings, and starry bracelets. The manager butted in, said that her look was worth a million bucks, and told her to brace for every boy and their buddy to shower her with compliments and gifts. Katapa laughed a thanks that aroused a feeling as good as any she's had in a long time, viewing her week in Delgadopolis as a break from the ups and downs that made tatters out of her home life. She paid for her wardrobe, returned to the fitting room, changed into it, stuffed her other clothes in bags, and thanked the associate and manager on her way out. Her sights were set on eating eclairs and drinking espresso, but a noisy argument ruined that appetite. It was a mother scolding her daughter for using her cursive to curse out her principal and act Catalpa had done to a teacher who'd been harassing her. Out of impulse, the parent called her child a disgrace to the family name and wished she could send her away. This was revolting for Catalpa to hear, but all the agreeing and verbal piling on was doubly so. Catalpa wanted to give the mother and her enablers a piece of her mind, but her chance was denied by an explosion that blew out more than the mall's lights. Ears ringing, eyes spinning, and skin numbing, she imagined her family jeering at her on her deathbed. Catalpa heard her mother, Basswood, tell her to do this and that or else so frequently that she woke up expecting it every morning. Her father, Aspen Sr., rarely had a bad thing to say about her, but that didn't mean their interactions were embraceive or warm-hearted. He stood idly by as Basswood got Catalpa's 
bare behind, bent over, bashed it to a welted swell with a dress belt, and said that only a firm hand can suffice with offspring like her. Aspen Jr. and Birch isolated themselves or hid together in rooms or closets whenever a quarrel between their mother and older sister was about to happen. Those two wanted to be at Catalpa's side, but were deathly afraid of Basswood and what she'd do to them, and Aspen Sr. desired to intervene too, but didn't for the same reason. But unlike their sister, Aspen Jr. and Birch were well behaved, and students on the honor roll sparing them of their mother's firm hand for the most part. Where the hurt in them came from was having to hear the quarrels and think of the physicality taking place. Catalpa reviled Basswood to such a degree that she planned to move out and start a life on her own the second she entered adulthood. Her resentment for Aspen Sr. was so strong that she wrote prose mocking his spinelessness and equating him to a female dog. Catalpa had no hard feelings for Aspen Jr. or Birch because to her the almost certainty of them siding with her made the mistreatment worth it. Her brain punched and kicked away the urge to pass out, bringing her back up to collect herself and join others in getting out of the mall. Catalpa was looked at by paramedics and promptly let go after her whiplash was deemed too minor to warrant hospitalization. She saw the mortally injured and hideously killed be carried out with a despondency she got to know real well. Catalpa fought the shivering urge to tear up, then wondered who in the world could possibly have a core rotten enough to commit such a cowardly atrocity. In the years after Alexis Jr.'s fall from power, Alexisville became a place where artists, writers, and musicians could make a living doing what they loved. Posters promoted book talks, art exhibitions, concerts, and plays from the city center to its outskirts. Writers and painters were hard at work in an abandoned rubber factory that was cleaned up, stripped to wall and floor, and turned into a space where creativity was enforced. Since 1976 was hours away, the artists wanted to end 1975 by making as much of an impression as possible for their exhibition tonight. One drawing depicted Carlisle III having a threesome with Adelino Sr. and Burr III. Another had Lyndon descend onto the earth as the second coming of Gabino Sr. and a third made Etchelstone out to be a maniac who hung the severed heads of Robapel and Nefuala above his fireplace. Marcos was moments removed from finishing his painting of Gregorio Jr. being a demon scheming while lurking in the shadows outside 
society's sight. He walked outside to snap open a can of cola, look up at the sunny sky, and let the wind cool him down. Marcos was still in disbelief over Gregorio being Meseta del Cielo's senior federal senator, but far too few Brumelians could wrap their heads around how severe of a threat he really was. He didn't allow that to beat his psyche up as tonight was his moment in the public square and chance to make Alexisville know who he was. Marcos noticed a truck passing by the X-Factory at a suspiciously low speed but sped away before he could approach. As that happened, a small bomb in a truck packed with empty propane tanks hit zero, puffing out a blast that blew half of Brumacalco's Bromelia City headquarters to papery char. Mauricia was interviewing the corporation's then-president, Robbie Moretto Jr., when the explosion knocked them out for a full minute. Luckily, their interview was in a meeting room at the back of the building, whereas the blast obliterated the front. They came to without serious injury, but needed a couple more minutes to recall what had occurred, and those two just so happened to be the only ones in the building. Dizzy but otherwise uninjured, Robbie helped a groggy Mauricia get to her feet as the steady alarm bell hustled them out of the room. Rushing down the stairs, she couldn't fathom why he was helping her after she spent a whole hour berating him, especially when their interview got very heated in the minutes leading up to the explosion. Robbie prided himself in making Brumacalco a company that appreciated hard work, valued perseverance, catered to the adventurous, and respected rectitude. Applying those priorities to everyday life, he worked whenever he could, never gave up when things got difficult, maintained a hunger for new experiences, and stayed true to himself. Robbie thought it was ill-advised to reciprocate the throws Mauricia maneuvered him with as her uncomfortable mannerisms told him that she had a crush on him. They jumped onto the back courtyard and hid behind a large fountain, watching the building flux, leak, crack, droop, and collapse to where only the framework's back half remained. Mauricia had to set up and supervise the interview as no one else at the Sunlighter was willing to work on New Year's Eve. Robbie didn't have a problem sitting down with her because he liked his women ticked off, asking to be handled firmly, desperate for anyone's company, and willing to submit themselves to him. He believed in his heart that Mauricia checked every box thrice over with an essay of comments to boot. She went into her interview with him intending to make it the talk of the nation, but now wants to keep it private because of how morosely personal it got. Mauricia had been her world's lone resident for years now, having nothing to do with her parents, 
Hamilton Jr., and Anselma, brothers Hamilton III, Innocencio, Randolph, and Emerson, and sisters Amy, Chantel, and Rafaela. Her last attempt to reestablish ties with them ended with a good riddance that spat on her, a venom that upset her into rudely hanging up and weeping herself to sleep. Mauricia accused Robbie and Bramacalco of donating millions to the campaigns of various Yellow Cross Caucus members. She alleged that he and his company benefited immensely from Robapel and Nefuala's colonization, adding that the natural resources and human labor both archipelagos provided resulted in potent products for very cheap. Robbie brushed off any accusation of him leeching off the Robapelis and Nefualis or their lands. He cited the good jobs he created for two nations that have long had primitive economies and how people like himself have brought said nations into the modern age. Mauricia presented him with written testimonies from former Bramacalco employees who worked at the company's plants in Robopel and Nefuala, alleging repugnant working conditions, frequent physical abuse, and a borderline malicious indifference to sanitation. Robbie cared very little about what a few disgruntled jackrabbits had to say adding that the vast majority of his workers love their work and intend to stay for the long haul. He showed Mauricia a stapled paper stack containing the testimonials of current and former employees at his company's West Rifujikan and Burkrahe City sites. That packet detailed the sites as having conditions that union workers in America would envy policies that fire abusers and harassers at will, and an intolerance for cleanliness that was even a speck below perfect. Thrown completely off guard by his rebuttal, Mauricia tried to respond, but wound up shuffling through her papers and stuttering to find a thing to say, which Robbie smiled at as he had her right where he wanted her. He advised her to consider doing her due diligence as a journalist before dishing out accusations as serious as the ones she made against him. Robbie added that even if Mauricia's lies were true, he was pretty sure that she was in no position to be scolding anyone for their wrongdoings. To her shock, he had his ways of enlightening himself to how the family princess wore her crown, and was hell-bent on going over what he learned. In kindergarten, Mauricia screamed at the top of her lungs as she threw blocks, dolls, and pillows as violently as her little body would allow. Her fit cracked windows as if pebbles had hit them at a freeway's speed limit, knocked a short bookshelf front first, onto its side and cluttered up the room, hitting four kids and her teacher along the way. The note Mauricia finished fifth grade on beat a nine-year-old boy into a nose-bleeding, 
purpled and blued up, sobbing mess with a firewood block. Her reason for doing what she did was that he dissed her princessy fashion sense and called her an ugly witch. Robbie chuckled as he almost forgot to mention what Mauricia led from her first day of high school. He called that moment the turn onto a road she couldn't undo as the pact she established yielded returns that outraged countless. Robbie wanted to go into every mile marker of that years-long drive, but Mauricia's hysterically childish plea for him not to was his call to be the life raft her family should have been. The explosion occurred at that moment and was an event shocking enough for her to see him as her person to turn to for comfort. Robbie could feel the desperation in Mauricia's embrace, throwing out whatever ire that packed his heart. Her internal pain blinded her from how stoically he handled the destruction of his headquarters even as a value close to the non-nupple digits aimed a flame at the Moretto name. Firefighters speedily arrived and doused the localized inferno with a relentlessness that squashed any possibility of it spreading to nearby areas. Robbie and Mauricia were rushed out of the extinguished scene by police and into the hands of paramedics who determined in three minutes that neither one needed any emergency care. His offer to take her to his palace in Clemente had her remind him that his wife Beverly and son Robbie III still hated her guts. Robbie Jr. answered that since he was the family's current head, no one below him would dare object, knowing darn well of what they had to lose if they did. He told Mauricia that in any case, he had something waiting for her in his wine cellar, describing it as a helping she's sure to grow fond of. Hills in unincorporated La Cordillera del Este moved to the gentle breeze, glaring sun and fragrant quiet, concealing an evil taking shape at a home's backyard. Glad to have the house to himself, Baldrick invited his friends over to try out their new pistols, breaking them in on a dead tree that had been recently lifted off the yard's back right corner. They had a ball shooting as if they were in the wild west, taking smoke breaks during their ceasefires and trading praises and criticisms. Neither Baldrick nor his buddies noticed Rebecca spying on them from a field full of dumped junk beyond the yard's back fence. With Rochelle and Riley crouching behind her, she tightened her grips on a bow and arrow as the boys continued shooting their guns. The stare Rebecca locked on Baldrick faintly pinkened her true beige as angrily as her vow to rescue Ridley and sick on her prisoners a suffering that's honest to God. A teardrop-shaped opening of the back fence slightly dipped into the ground was six inches wide and a foot in height. Rebecca 
began wondering if she was wrong to have insisted that she, Rochelle, Ridley, and Riley end the year by going on their first foot slog. All she wanted to do was expose her half-sisters to a little adventure, thinking that a hint of danger wouldn't hurt anybody. Much like the processing plant in Rusalka, a valley more sheer than the utility funnel hid Ivyville's coal mine from unwanted visitors. The town wore a blue collar as rough and unclean as the hands that processed the rock used to produce Bromelia's electricity. For all its grittiness, Ivyville had a cultivated enclave, a rectangular two-floor ex-school with a square-holed courtyard in the center. Each classroom was a motel-like room that housed some of Ivyville's orphans, including Rebecca, Rochelle, Ridley, and Riley. The half-sisters knew they shared a parent just by how similar they looked, but had no knowledge of the details concerning that relation. Their living situation allowed for free roam as long as it didn't adversely impact their schooling or safety, but no one dared to test the boundaries of that privilege. That was until Rebecca woke up the morning after Christmas and decided to sprinkle a little fun into Rochelle, Ridley, and Riley's lives. During breakfast, she looked around to make sure no one was listening in on her, then proposed that she and her half-sisters go on a footslog to Clemente. Ridley called herself born ready for such an adventure, but Riley rigidly shook in hesitation, and Rochelle outright refused to embark on a journey that was highly likely to not end well. Yet that hardly mattered because of the tape recorder duct-taped under their table. Blackburn Sr. copied how his fellow workers watched over the children, making him out to be nothing more than another late teenager. He waited for everyone else to leave the cafeteria, ripped the recorder off the table, put it in his pocket, and walked out for his lunch by himself, as he regularly did to have at least an hour of quiet. Blackburn overweeningly swaggered 60 yards to the trailer he recently bought, eating a salami sandwich and drinking milk the whole way. His sensitive side came out when he saw his little sister, Roberta, and her best friend, Caprice, play with their dolls. Blackburn handed them the recorder and said that they knew who to give it to because their arriving ride will take them to where those people lived. He commented that Caprice's parents, Samson and Alberta, will smile at their angel and her friend bringing them a recording so valuable. A weak horn honk pushed Blackburn to tell the girls to be off with them as they had a retaliation to make possible. After the station wagon left, an old clock showed him that his hour was almost up, jolting him into locking up his house 
and sprinting back to the orphanage. Blackburn clocked back in from lunch with six seconds to spare and spent the next three minutes regulating his breathing and heartbeat. He stared a hole into room number 105 as he walked by it, knowing that the half-sisters were born in Amarifrica and shared a father his masters in Crisistrea want very much. Despite five days having passed, Rochelle still resented Rebecca for coercing her, manipulating Riley, and leading Ridley into an ungodly ordeal. She knew that no good could have come from that slog, and now their union of four may become three as a result. Yet Rochelle and Riley had no desire to leave Rebecca, deciding to hold her accountable at a more appropriate date. The half-sisters had a bond, even a grave mistake couldn't destroy, but this didn't mean they let transgressions go unpunished. But for now, Rochelle and Riley helped Rebecca place her arrow into the bow and aim it at Baldrick's left hip. Right as their half-sister fired at her target, a catastrophic explosion whizzed the shot past his nose, coming within a centimeter of ripping part of his face right off. Livid over the narrow miss, Baldrick screamed out a deafening F-word and ordered his friends to open fire at the fence with him. They ceased shooting as quickly as they started and carefully made an approach, expecting to find their would-be intruders shot dead. Ripping the fence wide open, Baldrick and his friends only found three squirrels knocking over junk in their frantic runs away. They weren't convinced that the person or people who fired the arrow were long gone. Searching through the clutter in hopes of granting Ridley her wish to see her half-sisters one final time. Baldrick made sure his friends left no bag unopened, piece of debris untouched, inch not looked at or pile undismantled. But when the search came up empty, he decided to have the provincial police do the hunting and punishing. Baldrick uneasily chuckled with the stories he heard of how authorities treated Bromelia's poorest and most despised. He and his friends knew Rebecca, Rochelle, and Riley were the three who fired the arrow and would do anything to rescue Ridley. They understood that today will not be their last interaction with the half-sisters and prompted Baldrick to notify Samson of the attempt on his life, resulting in an order that all involved will feel the effects of for ages to come. Rebecca, Rochelle, and Riley darted to a small yet deep secluded creek a mile away and had the water come up to their chins. They waited until nightfall to make their unsteady walk of dreadful sadness back to Ivyville and their orphanage. Speaking for herself, Rochelle and Riley, Rebecca let the caretakers know 
about Ridley's kidnapping, omitting any detail about her careless desperation for adventure. Watching cartoons, Baldrick and his friends feared the worst when Telezoro interrupted their show to report breaking news. An anchor regretted informing viewers that numerous explosions had engulfed Bromelia in flame, smoke, rubble, and death. It turned out that in addition to Loyohia Mall and Bromacalco HQ, all ten of the provincial offices that the Bromelian People's Party operated had been bombed, but not their federal headquarters. Seconds from setting their device to explode, the would-be bombers were placed under arrest by Bromelia City's finest. During psychotically harsh questioning, they squirmed and gave police the information needed to identify accomplice and motive, but on the condition that their lives be spared. The cops were fine with this as they never entertained having their arrestees executed formally, but did have something much worse planned. Mauricia comforted Robbie Jr., who fought real hard not to cry or tear up, filtering those temptations through an extreme rage. While Beverly and Robbie III were unharmed, both were too scared to share in that anger, having heard the explosion from a wine cellar 35 feet below ground. Nothing remained of an estate that was once a golden delicious apple farm Robbie Sr. built to function as the Yellow Cross's first compound. For all the long, deep cracks the cellar sustained, the walls did their job in keeping the bottles intact, including one that weighed 750 liters. They limited Beverly and Robbie III's injuries to ringing ears and slight nausea from the shockwave. Lying on its side like a water tank, the bottle had one liter of wine, while the other 749 came from treasures only its crafters knew about. For everybody else, they were status symbols that some aspired to make their own, while others viewed them as the latest obscure item to be desired by the hip and popular. Beverly and Robbie III were so caught up in the explosion's aftermath that their hatred for Mauricia was of no importance. At such a devastating stage, they were Bromelians and not conservatives, liberals, elites, or peasants, putting aside any and all ill will. The bombings outraged the mainland populace into demanding the names of those responsible and that they be subject to the most awful actions. Grimsby Sr. knew his people were starving to see evildoers be punished, as his mind had that appetite as well. He had an extravagant party planned for himself, his family, friends, and administration at the Theodore Betancourt Memorial Farm. The festivities were moments from beginning when Grimsby and his VP, Ulred Sr., were informed of the bombings. That sobered away the New Year's Eve buzz, but that wasn't all because authorities had just foiled a plot that sought to blow up the flagship celebration in Brumel Square. 
Grimsby was in disbelief that an assault so wicked was happening before his eyes, but didn't let that stop him from getting to work. He spent his ride back to the presidential chateau, writing a speech under the guidance of Alured, who saw to it that his superior didn't miss any point that had to be hit. By seven that night, Grimsby was live on all the networks, speaking before an audience of federal legislators. His speech began with a wish that he'd be addressing the nation with a smile on his face, party hat over his head, and glass of champagne in hand. Grimsby said that his speech to end the year will still happen, but with a cheerlessness appropriate for a darkness that now enshrouds Bromelia. He recapped the bombings to his people, sent his condolences and sincerest apologies to those who've lost loved ones, livelihoods, or both. Grimsby scowled daggers into the camera with an intensity as solid as the firmness in his posture, trying real hard not to let his emotions consume him. Nevertheless, millions of Bromelians could feel the vengefulness radiating from his stare, knowing full well that the bombings were personal to him as he himself was a target. Alured simpered up at Grimsby as his portion of the response was about to be read, an extract that put benefit and risk on an equal plane. His superior announced that upon returning to Bromelia City, he found out who masterminded the bombings and why. Grimsby said that all evidence points to Alexis Jr. being the ringleader, calling him the man with the bottomless pit of resources and fathomless want to enslave the earth. In a family-friendly diner, Upton and Misha blended in with the others listening to the address on Roddy Zorro, taking in their revenge on an estranged superior who promised them everything and more but ended up not giving them a thing. The two were able to pin the bombings on Alexis Jr. by building their bombs with parts they looted from factories and plants that had ties to him. They knew the materials and chemicals were unique to their ex-superior as his signatures were on each thing that had a role in creating the bombs. Upton and Misha locked pinkies under the table and relished how there wasn't an ounce of suspicion directed at them anywhere in sight. Grimsby said that while the bombings were an escalation that shocked even him, they're also reminders of how low Alexis will go on his quest for world domination. He called him and those under his control one and the same, saying that they all deserve no distinction as years have passed since that ship had sailed. Grimsby felt like he owed his people an apology for letting the Alexis problem reach such an explosive point. He said that tonight will begin the end of him and his colony, issuing a declaration of war against the Adaloon Islands. Grimsby raised his voice as he gave the Bromelian people his word that his attempt 
to get Alexis will succeed and not succumb to the same failure that Carlisle III and Gabino Sr.'s tries did. He ended his speech by activating the Bromelian conscription system, scheduling a draft for January 1st, 1976 at 10 o'clock a.m. But an hour before that raffle was to take place, Grimsby received enough voluntary service requests that he canceled the whole thing. Soon after, Theodora announced that Roapel will help Bromelia in their offensive, prompting Chizova to declare Nefuala's intention to assist the Adaloon Islands' defensive effort. In West Rifuji Khan's Adalino Anyon Plaza, Adalina, Kimi, Ramira, and their fellow people raised their military service cards in solidarity. That united surface hid a divide between the willing, hesitant, and compelled, underlining how less enthusiastic Robopel was about fighting Alexis after the crisis that hit their archipelago a couple years back. But in Cressistrea, the atmosphere was rich in exhilaration and bare of even the most innocuous hesitation. Even then, that elation to shoot Bolshevists squealing dead varied in intensity but remained noticeably existent across the meter. Brett Jr. cocked his machine gun with a lip-licking lust that desired to know what communists tasted like. But Adelino Jr. stared into his assault rifle like it was a shaved key he could use to gain access to whatever place that contained what he wanted. In Walpolido, Marcos firmly stood with his fellow teens as Alured welcomed them to the process of being deployed. Baldrick and kids of his elite kind received an equally thankful greeting in Clemente and got Grimsby's assurance that he'll make sure they return alive. Etchelstone told Catalpa and the other teens of Crisanto Coast, Las Grandes Cascadas, that they'll be especially crucial in showing those Adalunian devils what it's like to be horribly attacked. In the Adalun Islands, Rhett, Ikena, and Yehide celebrated New Year's in swimsuits and swimming trunks at the Feliknical Resort in Philisisla. They had long crossed the finish line of their goal to dance disco, swim in fancy pools, eat seafood, and drink tropical juices the whole night without rest when they learned of Grimsby's war declaration. Their party buzzes vaporized instantly, making way for hangovers equal in impact, but void of any feeling besides horror. Yet for many, that declaration was a moment they believed would come sooner or later, which was why their president, Haruna, took steps to equip the island chain and prepare his people for that day. Although Lunsal and Felicisla were on opposite ends of the Adalun Islands, this didn't numb the fear Ikena and Yehide had for Rhett's life 
or their own. As for Haruna, a lot had changed between him, Chizoba, Alexis, Okosua, Kahina, Lumusi, Juma, Kisembo, and Tadala in the time between the crisis and war declaration. This made possible the plans and surprises they were ready to sick on the insurging Brumelians and Robopelis. Still in all, no one was as enraged about the declaration as Alexis was, calling it a response to an attack he didn't even authorize or had anything to do with. He then said that it was what he'd expect out of imperialists like Grimsby and Alurad, equating their coalition to the one Gabino Sr. and Carlisle III had after his regime fell. From a dug-up valley, Alexis's base looked up, hid under, and inside a mountainous cluster as towering as they were flamboyantly grown over. Its isolation made him no less certain that he was done for if the Bromelians and Robopelis found it, so he focused his evasive actions on Alexis III and Loretto, making sure they were safe no matter the outcome. As for the bombings themselves, Alexis Jr. had a good idea who the ringleaders were and how they succeeded in pinning the attacks on him. He dispatched Richter Sr. and Sterling to punish Upton and Misha for violating the terms of their banishment. Alexis told his dispatchees to make their visit an example for others to learn from, adding that it'll ensure that future banishees take their sanctions like good human beings. He said that in Alexis Sr.'s name, Grimsby won't come out on top, promising that there will be no winner if his triumph doesn't occur, and as fate would have it, Grimsby and Theodora would find themselves entering a conflict much like another a lot farther east. And that was the booms at year's end. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to the story I just gave. Share this show with everyone you know. Make sure they share it with everyone they know. Check out my website at www.rss.com slash podcasts slash the dystopian republic. Send me your respectful questions and constructive feedback at Raul Guerrero Jr. 95 at gmail.com. And lastly, support the show via my PayPal at paypal.com slash paypal me slash Raul Guerrero Jr. On that note, I'm Raul Guerrero and come again for another gripping, thoughtful, and sinister episode of the Dystopian Republic.